Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello, and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize talking about our mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance to anyone who might be struggling or who knows someone that is. Today, we have a very special guest whose ability to keep going amid extraordinarily challenging circumstances has been an inspiration to so many. Fitness entrepreneur and actress Amanda Klutz is here now to talk all about the power of positivity and how she's cultivated resilience and grit in the face of tragedy. Welcome, Amanda. I'm so happy to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk to you. So I would love to kick this off first by just Checking in with you, how are you doing? How is your son Elvis doing? He's going to be turning four, right? Yeah. In June. Yep. How exciting. Yep. We're doing great. I can't believe he's almost four years old. I mean, that's just, I mean, you know, every parent says it, but the time just goes by so fast. But we're doing great. We're enjoying summer, even though it's not feeling like summer in LA. <laughs> we're enjoying summer and everything's good. Well, I'm very happy to hear. I know. I feel like everyone in LA, you guys have really been going through it with the weather the last few months. <laughs> You're like, this isn't what I signed up for. Yeah. Everyone's like, I'm sorry. This isn't why we live in Los Angeles. There's something happening these last couple months, but let's just hope it's a fluke and we get back to regular scheduled programming soon. <laughs> Tell us like, what is your son Elvis into right now? What's making him happy? Oh my gosh. He loves music, any and all music. He loves playing his drums and the guitar and singing at the top of his lungs. And these are not normal four-year-old songs. He loves singing My Chemical Romance, The Sticks, oh, wow. The Who, Queen. Yeah. Great He's, music uh, taste for very well-educated. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, he's so fun. I mean, it's it's really crazy. But yes, I would say that's his first focus. And then he also loves soccer and karate. And he's just a great kid. I feel so lucky. Well, sounds like he's very busy. I love it. So now <laughs> many of our listeners will recognize your voice as one of the hosts of the hit CBS show, The Talk. But throughout your life, you have also been a fitness entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about the role that athletics and fitness has played in your life. You know, it's funny. I started teaching fitness a long time ago as just a job that I could have while I was performing because Broadway shows are so up and down. You're kind of in and out of work constantly that it was nice to have a constant job, a constant paycheck. And I found that in teaching fitness. And I just loved it. I loved being with one person training one-on-one or in a group, you know, fitness class teaching, you know, 30 women. It was just like such a fun thing to do to encourage people, motivate people, see community bonding. And I just fell in love with it. And so then 
when I was going through a very low point in life and wanted to switch up, I started my own business and started my own fitness company. And I think that's when I found fitness as not only fun and empowering, but also like a savior for my mental health. Because at the time I was going through a divorce and I found fitness as a way to, you know, just every day get my mood up. You know, Mm -hmm. I would be walking to a client or walking to go teach and I would be sobbing to my mother on the phone. And then I would wipe the tears away, walk into a client, turn on music, start moving my body. And I would walk out of that session smiling and happy and singing. And I started realizing how much fitness for me is not about your gene size. It's about mm-hmm. making myself feel better, relieving stress and anxiety, quickly turning my mood around, filling my body with endorphins and being on that high instead of on a low. And so when I started my company, that's kind of what I really made it about. I made it more so about being together in a group of people, enjoying moving your body, Mm -hmm. having fun and celebrating that and working hard and focusing on the moves and doing things right so that you did see a change in your body. But it, it was more so about being there because you could be because you wanted to be and because it made you happy. Yeah, I definitely first got introduced to you. I think you had been working out with Ami Song, who is a friend of mine. And and I just remember her always posting your workouts together. And, you know, I was just thought, oh, my God, like it looks so fun. And I know you were a dancer in the past. I was also a dancer, I mean, in my like teens. So yeah, like dance-based workouts have always really inspired me and been the most fun for me. I'm not really a fitness girl, but as long as I'm dancing, I'm happy. And I feel like people think it's so cliche, you know, this idea of like the endorphins around exercising and the high you get, but it's so real. And sometimes, yes, it's hard to like want to motivate to get up and, and do what you need to do to exercise. But the feeling that you get after is just unmatched. I know it really is. I mean, it saved me through my divorce. It saved me through covid it saves me every day. I mean, I took two fitness classes today just because I love being in a group of people, feeling their energy, mm-hmm. being pushed, loud music playing. It makes me smile. It makes me happy. It's my, honestly, it's like my self-care for the day. Right. And you must also, as you said, like sort of feed off the energy as well of just like, you know, being in community with other women and being in a room where everyone is just like having a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now to switch gears a little bit, obviously the last several years have been really hard for you and your family. The tragedy that you experienced during the pandemic and the loss of your husband, Nick Cordero, has been well documented and you've been very, very open about your journey. Why was it so important to you to share what you were going through with the world? Well, you know, it wasn't something that I planned on. It was more so just kind of happened out of circumstance because at the time when Nick got sick, it was the very, very beginning of COVID and lockdown. And I was teaching with Ami Mm -hmm. every other day. We were doing live workouts on Instagram together. And it was 
that part of my life. And then I would turn the camera off and then Nick would be taking a nap on the couch for the fifth time that day or, you know, coughing or not being able to get up. And, and then when I took him into the emergency room and he was in the ICU, I just thought to myself, you know, I can't get on Instagram every day and, and do these fitness workouts and then lie about what's happening at home. You know, it just didn't seem right. On top of that, again, on the news at that point in time, this was affecting 65 and older, pre-existing health conditions. The symptoms were, you know, no taste, no smell, a bad cough. Nick had none of that. So I just thought it was really important to let everybody know, hey, my husband's 41 years old, perfectly healthy, no pre-existing health conditions, no symptoms, and he's in the hospital right now. So just be aware, you know, it was more so like a public service announcement. And then as everything kept unfolding, I just kept, you know, it was just kind of like this machine that just kept going. And, and honestly, I kept sharing because the help I was getting was so helpful. Right. I was getting so much advice. I was getting advice on how to talk to somebody that's in a coma. I was getting medical advice. I was getting you know, I had a community that was forming around me. And I'll tell you one thing I learned is like, when you're going through something really hard, when you have to go through it alone or with a community of people behind you, oh my God, like choose the community of people because I was kind of alone, but because of Instagram and social media, I had this community every day that was lifting me up and it made all the difference. Yeah, I can imagine. But was there also a part of you that maybe felt conflicted about sharing so much? Because I think there's always this idea that like, you know, like we have to keep things light and happy on social media. And like, you don't want people to accuse you of like being a Debbie Downer, like bringing other people down. Like, was there any of that kind of fear in the back of your mind? You know, no, not at that time. Because if you remember... I thought, I actually thought the beauty of COVID with social media was, is that it took away the perfection of social media. Yeah. In my opinion, right before COVID, social media was getting to the point where every picture was perfect. Everyone's lives were perfect. Every photo was Photoshopped perfectly. And it was getting to a point where I was even stopping myself from posting things because I was like, the lighting isn't good. I don't sound good enough. I don't have a cute enough outfit. It was like literally perfection after perfection. And then I, you know, in my opinion, COVID hit and it was like, nobody wanted to see perfection. Nobody wanted to see you on the beach in the perfect bikini, in the perfect sand with the perfect bag and the perfect husband. (laughs) Like nobody wanted to see it. And so it was sort of a blessing because I think it made it very easy to get on Instagram every day in my sweats and no makeup and holding my child and and my hair a mess and just saying what was happening because everybody was at home in the same way, just trying to figure out what is happening. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, um, I don't know, it it was all just like, timing of everything, you know, just such a crazy time in our world. I don't know if it'll ever happen again, you know, like that tear down of perfection and everybody really just kind of on the same playing field. I know. I do think also the people who were able to kind of strip things back and 
be a real person again on social media were the people that everyone like really gravitated towards because I do think on the flip side, like, yeah, there was still a little bit of that sort of like out of touchness on social media. And I think a lot of people like experienced sort of like a backlash because I think you had to have tact in a sense of knowing how to navigate, you know, especially like in the influencer space and whatnot that yes, while so many of us have like very privileged lives, like there's a lot of pain and confusion and, and just fear about what we're all collectively going through. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a crazy time. And I think that I was very lucky to have all the support that I had, you know, even just everybody every day singing with me at 3 p.m., mm-hmm. 6 p.m. Eastern time. Like I remember those, you days. know, I think I think about that. A, yeah, I think about it a lot because if I tried to get the world to sing with me every day for 95 days straight right now at 3 p.m., mm. there's no way <laughs> I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, because everybody's busy now again. Everybody has work again and everybody has their lives again. It was just this weird time in our world. And I was very unfortunate in a lot of ways during that time, but I was very fortunate in a lot of ways. I know. And even with you saying that everyone's lives are moving on now, has that been strange for you in the sense that, of course, your life has moved on, but in a much different way? than a lot of people who are now just back to normal life. And it's almost like the last three years didn't happen. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. There are some times where I even catch myself being like three years ago, because I do this a lot in life, you know, five years ago today, three years ago today, you know, and I think about three years ago, how different our world was. Mm -hmm. And these dates, April, May, June. For me, if you'd say any of them, May 14th, I can tell you exactly what I was doing, where I was and what was happening with Nick. I mean, it's still ingrained in my brain. So yeah, that is a little weird. But I will say one thing. I I said this to somebody the other day, I can't remember who, but about grief. When Nick passed away, it was still like the height of COVID and for a while still very much in COVID land. And I guess it was helpful in a way because I was grieving alone and I was very sad. It was comforting also to know, though, that a lot of people were just at home, too, and not doing anything as well. You know, because as we know from social media, you can get on and you can boy everybody's life and look at the vacation they're on and look at the party they're at and Mm -hmm. they're doing this and they're doing that. And you can start feeling like, gosh, you're just a loser. And (laughs) when you're grieving heavily grieving and you really have no, you know, effort, you know, you, you just don't want to do anything and you're, you feel so lost. There was a weird comfort in knowing everybody right now feels lost. Everybody feels alone. Everybody feels sad. So, you know, I don't know. It's uh again, it was a weird time and a weird thing to go through at that time. Yeah. Many blessings through it and also many hardships, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, your story just like really captured the attention of so many people and impacted them. But there are also people, of course, who were criticizing you for never stepping away from your platform, you know, while your husband was sick. How did you deal with that type of criticism? Well, you know, I feel like with life, you can't please everybody. <laughs> and right. uh, 
I have very thick skin, I think from the 19 years of living in New York City and 14 or 15 years performing on Broadway and being told all sorts of things all the time about I'm not good enough. I don't dance well enough. I don't sing well enough. I don't act well enough. You know, I, I've built up very, very thick skin. So I, I really don't let it bother me. And if I see something that is really hurtful or hateful, I just block or delete or restrict those people. You know, I always say to myself, if they could walk in my shoes for right. 10 minutes, they right. would probably look at me and go, I am so sorry for what I just said to you on your Instagram account, not knowing you or your life. I think we can all say that. No one knows what kind of day somebody is having and what they're trying to get through and what battles they're facing. And you can sit on your couch and you can judge somebody, but what is that doing for your life? You know what I mean? Like, so uh, I kind of let it roll off my back because I understand and I realize that they have no idea what I'm going through. Right. And you know, what can you do? Truly. And obviously, like, as we already kind of touched upon, it's like, the flip side is that is that you really had this amazing community rallying around you and sending you good energy and trying to be there for you. And as you said, giving you lots of advice. So I feel like that also definitely overshadows whatever the naysayers want to say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The one out of a thousand still like stings you and you're like, (gasps) You know, (laughs) but yeah, you just, you kind of have to let it roll off your chest. Right. It's like everyone says, it's like you could receive a hundred compliments and the one negative comment is like the one that sort of sticks to you. Mm -hmm. Gets (laughs) you. So creative outlets can be so important when it comes to mental health. And when Nick was in the hospital, as you mentioned, you had encouraged everyone to dance and sing to his song, Live Your Life. And you wrote about, you know, how you were smiling and singing in his room every day. Why was this so important to you? And how did it help you process your grief and the trauma of the experience at the time? Yeah, you know, Nick's doctor said to me day one, if we stay positive, we have options. And if we're negative, we have no options. And I knew right from that moment, I was going to like this guy (laughs) and that we would be on the same team. You know, in life in general, always, I, I have a positive outlook on life. I don't take no for an answer easily. I, I always think there's another way or there's gonna be another way. Mm -hmm. I, it, it just, it never, it really, even when they would tell me Nick was going to die in an hour, I just, I never let it really sink in. I just never believed that he would go. I, I just, I just was like, it didn't matter what they said to me. I just stayed positive and, and I did that by singing and dancing. And I truly believed it every time I was in the room with him, Nick loved music. He loved energy. He loved people he loved to be around people. So I knew that if I was there and playing music and singing and dancing, it could only help him. So it was either that helping him or just sitting in silence and crying by his side. I knew that wasn't going to lift his spirits. And I needed, I knew I needed to lift his spirits. I knew I needed him to know, even if it was just synergetically, (laughs) that I believed that he was going to make it you know, your people very well. And I knew, knew Nick very well. And I just knew what he would need me to do to help him get through these days of just laying there all alone, not being able to move. Yeah. It just was my choice, you know? 
That's really so special, though. I really love that how, you know, you got everyone together to do this. And I feel like, yeah, that is just like such an uplifting environment to be in, in spite of what was going on. And you were spending so many days in the hospital, but then, you know, you obviously you have your son to look after, like when you were getting home, how are you taking care of yourself? And like, what were you doing to cope? You know, I, I, I wasn't really taking care of myself too much. I mean, at that time mm-hmm. it was, it, it was a lot on the back. I was on the back, you know, my care was on the back seat, yeah. in the back seat. I mean, it was not easy. I would be at the hospital and I would have to leave either because my visiting hours were up or mm-hmm. because I was still breastfeeding at the time and I needed to get home to my son. Mm-hmm. So I would leave Nick and I felt terrible and guilty because I knew as soon as I left his room, there would be nobody and there would be nothing and there would be no sound and no one holding his hand and he was all alone. And I would cry all the way home in the car And then I would pull into the driveway and I would wipe my tears and I'd walk in the door and I would see my little son and he would look at me and he would smile Mm -hmm. and run to me and I would go, hi Elvis, mama's home. And I quickly had to turn on mom mode and he usually wanted to breastfeed right away. And so I was hugging him and holding him and breastfeeding him. And he was looking up at me and playing with me. And then he wanted to continue to play, you know, or or do something. So I felt that I was just going from such extremes all the time. My self-care, honestly, was I would get a workout in. I would would go get a workout in every day. Um, My little sister would work out with me. My brother and my little sister were living with me. So I had their help with Elvis. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times my self-care was just that workout, whether it was a 10-minute jump rope or an hour-long workout in the driveway with Anna. That was really all I ever had time for. And, you know, thank God for the two of them because they would put Elvis to bed, take care of Elvis while I was at the hospital. And then I would come home and they'd have dinner on and, and they would make me smile and make me laugh. And you know, that was, that was what it was about those days. You know, it was sometimes in life, you got to be selfless, you know, and, uh, and, and not, not put yourself first. And that definitely was a time in my life. And I feel like that's what being a mom is also about, right? Yeah. (laughs) Most of the time. There's a lot of that for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's also amazing, you know, that you had your family to be, you know, your support system as well, because I think when we're obviously going through very trying times, also community is really important and who is showing up for you, not just online, but also in real life. Obviously, we need those people who are going to be at our door and be there for us to lean on. Oh, yeah. I mean... My sister and my brother, we say this all the time, like never again will there be a moment where my brother's like, I'm just going to leave my family, drive down to LA and live with you for two months. And Anna would never leave Paris for two months and just come live with me as well. So like, you know, we look back sometimes at those days of the three of us as siblings living together again as adults. And we we sometimes are like, don't you wish we could just go back to living together for like a week? Because it was so, it was so fun. And again, the worst of times, literally the worst of times. But I look back on it and I miss our movie nights. I miss our dinners. I miss our laughter. 
I miss our little fights that we had. I miss like the three of us together fighting for someone's life and raising a child and and being siblings. It really was a beautiful time. I know that makes me emotional just thinking about it because I have two older brothers who I'm very close with. And yeah, I would like to imagine that if I was ever going through something like that or they were that like we would all band together and be there for each other. So I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I was very lucky to have their support. I definitely couldn't have done it without them for sure. And now you eventually made the decision to write a book about the story of your life with Nick titled Live Your Life. What was it like for you to sit down and write all that out? And did writing the book help you to process the tragedy that you experienced? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was I had never done that. I'm not a big journaler or diary person. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize how cathartic it is to write down your thoughts. Oh, yeah. I really didn't. You know, when when Nick passed and two weeks later, I started, I was in Ohio and I kind of started, not kind of, I started writing things down and I was, you know, staying up till two o'clock in the morning and I could barely see the computer because of tears and I was typing and I mean, then I would go to bed and I was like, wow, I mean, this is, this is amazing. Writing is so therapeutic and helpful. And I, I, yeah, I didn't realize it. And there were days, you know, when Anna was, you know, Anna was helping me write it, my little sister, and she was in Paris and I was in LA and we would have big long meetings over, you know, the phone to write. And then we finished the book together in Laurel Canyon right before Christmas of, you know, the year the year prior that we were publishing it and, you know, sitting there together as sisters, finishing the story, writing it. I mean, we both were in tears. I think that, you know, especially with grief, something that I've learned is that it's a continual healing process. It just doesn't go away over time. You know, it, it never finishes. It's ever changing. And every time I write about this story, talk about this story, dance the story, whatever it is, it is another layer of healing. And the layers of healing will continue to grow and grow and grow. And and it only helps. It, it helps every single time feel like a little bit put back together. So now it is funny. I, I always encourage people to write. <laughs> you just write. Even if you don't think you're a writer, write because it's so therapeutic. Do you still write? Oh yeah, all the time. I write Elvis letters. I write on my phone and my notes. Anna and I are working on the screenplay now of Live Your Life. So we've been, you know, rewriting it now in that way, which is it's is very interesting because, you know, with film you can show things. In a book, you have to describe things. Yeah. So it's been interesting again reimagining this story in this way again is like another healing. It's it's more healing and more help. So it's it's been very interesting. I'm a huge journaler, so I can definitely back you up on journaling as a very cathartic and therapeutic process. I absolutely love it. I've kept journals since I was a preteen. And, you know, whenever I'm going through something, oh, jealous, it's, you know, I'm the journal is the first thing that I'm going to tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love it now. I'm jealous that you have journals. (laughs) (laughs) 
And um, you've also spoken about the importance of seeking out help. Tell us a little bit about your decision to start therapy. You know, when did you realize, okay, I need some professional assistance here? And how was the help that you received? Yeah, you know, it was interesting with this round. You know, the first time I ever went to therapy was when I was going through my divorce. And I went to traditional therapy six months after my divorce. And I, I was like, you know, traditional by, I mean, by like going to a place, sitting across the, you know, couch from somebody having an hour session and then leaving. Mm -hmm. So this time around when everyone was telling me, you know, you got to go to therapy, got to go to therapy. Do you have a therapist? I knew myself very well. And I said, I will, I will get there. It's not right right now, but I will, I'll definitely do that. And then starting to write the book and then doing the audio book and, and through all of that and finding therapy that way, it took me a minute to figure out different therapy steps. But what I found really helpful is the different therapies that are out there now that I would say are a bit non-traditional just based off of what people assume therapy is. So like one of the first things I did was yoga nidra sessions, hour-long meditation sessions with a guide. That was like my first step into therapy and I loved it. It was like deep soul searching. I felt like my organs were massaged after each session. I felt like I was getting like put back together. I felt Nick's presence a lot in these sessions. It was beautiful and it really like was my first toe dip in. And then I've done a lot of energy healing and energy work, which has been absolutely life-changing and wonderful and so, so therapeutic and, and great. And, you know, now I am now just seeing a therapist like a over Zoom. Yeah. I'm continually finding different ways. It, for me, it isn't one thing. It's a lot of things. Yep. It's different, all different ways. And I go in and out of them, you know, sometimes I'm really, really into energy. Sometimes I'm really, really into traditional therapy. Sometimes I'm really, really into something else. And I just kind of ebb and flow with it. But yeah, I I definitely think that the greatest thing about our world right now in therapy is all the different options we have. And I think like dating, you just have to keep trying things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and find what works because what works for one person might not work for you. Don't give up. Just keep trying and don't be scared. You know, there's a lot of things I've done where I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never done this before. Here we go. Mm-hmm. And then it's been so helpful. And it's just because I tried because you really have nothing to lose. You just have to be a little bit you know, willing to try something. Yeah. And like keep an open mind. I'm a huge believer in that. I love traditional talk therapy. I've been in therapy since I was a preteen, but I've taken breaks at times. I love exploring other modalities, more spiritual practices. And, you know, all paths help you on this journey of life. And I think it's really about keeping an open mind. And yeah, sometimes experimenting with things that you might not really know much about, but could still really help you. Yeah, absolutely. So now when it comes to mental health, there's, you know, a lot to be said about the power of positivity. We touched upon this a little bit earlier. You're a big believer in, you know, staying positive. How do you actually like 
put this into practice, though, keeping a positive mind frame? You know, how do you cultivate that resilience and grit? You know, I make it a part of my day, like brushing my teeth. You know, I mean, it's it's a choice, I believe. And it's a harder choice on days where you're really not feeling it. Mm -hmm. It's a really harder choice. But I make it a part of my day. So for instance, for the last seven years, the first thing I do is wake up and I find a positive thought, a quote, a video, something that makes me smile, something that makes me ponder, something that makes me motivated. And I usually post it on my Instagram as my AK positive thought of the day. So right away, like that's just a part of my day before I even get out of bed. And then when I drive to work, I have made this a part of my day where I say everything I'm grateful for that day. If it's one thing, if all I can say is that I'm healthy and I'm driving to work, you know what I mean? Like that's what it is. But usually I can find a lot more things (laughs) that I'm happy and positive and grateful for. And so again, that's just something that is immediately when you're, when you're spouting off 10 things that you're happy and grateful for, it really is hard to go in a negative direction after that, because Mm -hmm. you've just said, all these things that are great in your life. Yeah. So that is, again, it's like, it's it's just a part of my day. I'm driving to work. I'm, I'm saying things that are, I'm outwardly not in. I'm outwardly speaking them out saying, this is what I'm happy about. And then, you know, obviously that I told you, a workout, a workout for me is something that makes me positive. So I, I make sure, again, it's a part of my day. It's every day I somehow do something because I know that that's going to make me get those endorphins and feel positive and happy. So I think to me, it's the choice. I schedule it in. I make it as if I'm, you know, we all brush our teeth. We all take a shower. We all wash our hair. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that for me. I always post my positive thought of the day. I say what I'm grateful for. I work out. It's ingrained in my schedule. Yeah. And it becomes just part of your routine. So you're always going right. to make time to find things that you're grateful for. And I think that's really inspiring, uh, you know, especially for someone who has gone through such tragedy as you have, because obviously it's not about pretending like every day is amazing and perfect, but you know, in spite of the challenges you've faced, that there are still things that you can be thankful for, grateful for, and find a positive outlook, even as you were, you know, looking back on the time that you had with your siblings, it's, you know, even though you said you're going through the most challenging time in your life, but you can still find moments that are worth appreciating. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what it's all about. You just gotta, you gotta be able to find those things even on the, uh, it's, it's harder on the darker days, but that's when you really gotta mm-hmm. dig deep and find them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's no secret that parenthood can be very stressful and, you know, hard on the mental health. Has motherhood changed the way you look at how our society talks about mental health and deals with it and even grief? Yeah, you know, I think I think motherhood teaches you a, a million <laughs> bajillion things. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're a single mom and you're doing this all on your own. And like me, unexpectedly, I never thought I would be a single parent. I think that, yeah, there's a lot of things that society expects or things that you think. And then I think it can cause a lot of, you know, mom guilt, especially if you are like me and you're a working mother that you know, even if you have a a partner or a spouse and you're a working parent, 
it's so hard and there's a lot of guilt in constantly leaving your child or not being with your child. But, you know, I think that being a parent, being a mom, I mean, for me, it's one of the greatest gifts in the entire world. I always wanted to be a mom. I'm I'm so lucky to be Elvis's mom. And, you know, I love the challenge. I love having a little person that I'm trying to raise <laughs> and have a little buddy. You know, he's just the best. So, yeah, I think it's a constant battle, you know, mm-hmm. and a constant learning curve. And earlier this year, you published your first children's book titled Tell Me Your Dreams. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the book and the importance of creating a safe space for children to express their hopes and dreams. You know, Elvis was a huge inspiration of this book, Our Bedtime Routine. I very much, I've realized, write what I know. And we were doing this bedtime routine where we sit in his rocking chair and we say our prayers and we sing songs. And he didn't want to go to sleep one night. And so I just said, do you want me to tell you your dream they're going to have tonight? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And so then I just started making up this fantastic dream that he was going to have this big adventure (laughs) with all the things that he loved to do, trash trucks and choo-choos and the beach and (laughs) planes. And I made it so that he was with his dad and that his dad was going to pick him up and take him on this dream and then put him back in his crib. And then I would come get him in the morning and it became our bedtime routine. I did it every night. And it became quite interactive. Elvis would, you know, chime in and say what color things were and where he wanted to go and what ice cream flavor he wanted to have. And it was our little routine. And I was pitching children's book ideas at HarperCollins, very flushed out, great ideas. And then at the end of the call, I said, you know, also, (laughs) you know, I've been doing this thing with Elvis every night where I tell him his dream and they're like, well, what's that? And I was like, well, you know, I sit in the chair and I I start going on this crazy adventure and blah, 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 blah. And they look at me and they go, that's the book. And I was like, that's the book. You know, it's like, again, these things that you just organically do as a parent where our kids inspire us to be little kids again. And because you get to be a little kid again, you're just, you know, inspired and you create these things for them and who knows what will happen with it. You get a children's book out of it. And yeah, you know, I hope the book, it's funny, you you write something like this and then I think there's a lot of meanings and things you realize after writing it. And mm-hmm. I definitely want children to dream and believe in their dreams and go for their dreams and believe that in their dreams, anything can happen and then wake up and try to make those things happen. Like that's so me and so my life <laughs> and so my message. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, I realized that this book is a great way for parents to begin talking to their children about people that they've lost in their life. So a grandparent, a parent, a sibling, a friend, you can encourage your child to close their eyes. And what adventure do you want to have with grandma tonight? What adventure do you want to have with Uncle Ryan tonight? What do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just such a great way to remind kids that, you know, they may be gone, these people in our lives here on earth, but you can meet up with them in your dreams and do fun things with them. So that was like a a surprise, like, you know, whoa, after I wrote the book, like, you know, what you realize things that you've done. So, yeah. Well, Amanda, this has been such an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your story. I know 
you know, it's been a while and you've done this book tour and everything. So I'm sure you're used to it by now, but still, I really appreciate you talking about such a difficult moment in your life. And before I let you go, what is one thing you would like the audience to take away from our discussion today or what piece of parting advice would you like to leave them? I would say the parting advice is live your life. My my husband's words. It's one of the best lessons I've learned in these last couple of years where, you know, we just, we never know what life is going to bring us and when our, our last moment is and how lucky we are to, you know, be healthy and happy and be able to do the things that we get to do. So I truly have changed the way I live where I just do it. <laughs> I don't ask questions. If I want to do something, I go do it. I truly believe you miss 100% of the shots you don't take in life, like yep. the Wayne Gretzky quote. <laughs> so take your shot. What yep. you got to lose? Somebody thinks you're crazy. Who cares? Somebody thinks you're an overachiever. Great. If somebody thinks you overstepped their bounds, oh, well, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter because you got to take those shots. So I don't know. I just, I, I love living my life that way. And so I, I would say parting advice is live your life. I love that. And I'm going to take that to heart as well. Thank you again, Amanda, <laughs> for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I want to give a huge thank you to Amanda for coming on the show today and talking about the power of positivity and how she's learned to live with tragedy and loss. And remember, we're here to provide access to mental health resources and support to those who need it most. For more information, visit Maybelline.com slash Brave Together. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine, You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline, New York. <laughs>